Welcome to the Alex Merced Cast, where Alex Merced of alexmerced.com brings you principled, thoughtful, libertarian commentary on issues that matter. Hey everybody, this is Alex Merced from alexmerced.com and you're listening to the Alex Merced Cast. And this is another Merced Mondays where I kind of go over, you know, more in-depth cool stuff. So like last week we did the Department of Education. Before that, we did the Tennessee Valley Authority. And this week, I figured we would do the Fed, the Federal Reserve and Monetary Policy. Um, and I'm sure you guys probably already know a lot about the Fed and what the Fed does. But a lot of times people don't realize sort of the full extent of the mechanics of the Fed or the history of the Fed. So I thought I would do that today. So in the history of the United States, there's been several central banks, four total, if you count the Bank of North America during the Revolutionary War. But first, let's just talk about what a central bank is, because I think a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding of this. A central bank is oftentimes, you can think of it as the banker's bank. They're sort of, they sort main thing they do is they act as a clearinghouse between banks, which this is one of those functions that is generally a, a good thing. Does it have to be sort of a monopoly central bank? No, who does it? But do you want a clearing party between banks? Yes. Now, what does that mean? Someone who kind of acts as sort of the go-between between the different banks and funds, kind of like um, making sure that transactions are go smoothly. So generally with a central bank, every bank has a bank account at the central bank. So when one bank sends another bank money because you cashed your check, um, they're the ones who, the central bank clears the check. They'll say, okay, well, this looks like a legit check, so we'll move it from this bank's bank account to this bank's bank account. So there's that function. In many cases, central banks also control the money supply. Um, so they're able to create money, take money out of the economy, which is a little bit more complicated than I'm making it sound. And... Also, nowadays, much of the time, they do some level of banking regulation. So banks who are members of the um, Fed are then regulated by the Fed. And generally, you would see this from any clearing party, even in, in private situations. So basically, most industries have clearing parties, which are not necessarily always government-created. There's entities that act as sort of a go-between, sort of as a guarantor of transactions. So that way, two people can enter a transaction but limit their counterparty risk. So they're kind of insuring the transaction in the same way the Fed sort of insures checks because they're acting as a clearing party between when you cash your check. Um, these parties are taking the risk. Like all insurance companies, insurance companies have a vested interest in minimizing the risk of the transactions you enter that you're insuring. So in that sense, oftentimes insurance companies, pri private insurance companies, private businesses end up sort of regulating the transaction. So if you get like housing insurance, they'll say, hey, you need to make sure your roof has been up to date. Last time, you need to do inspections every once in a while. All these things to help mitigate the risks that you may need to cash in your insurance policy. So in the sense that while the Fed acts as a regulator of the banking system, part of that is they're regulating their member banks and partly they have a vested interest in doing so because they economically insured transactions and in, even if they were truly sort of a a free market entity that acted as a clearing party between banks they would probably still exercise some level of regulatory power um voluntarily so 
you know, there's a mix. The point I'm trying to make is that there's a difference between saying, hey, you know what, regulations, this particular regulation is bad or owner's regulations hurt business versus saying, hey, you know, in a free market, there would be no regulations. There, there would be. And the difference is just sort of the environment in, you know, what who decides the rules, what happens if the rules are bad, what kind of accountability there is, how quickly can the rules change. These are sort of a lot of the more factors and why you want private actors oftentimes making the rules. So other point I'm trying to make is basically that if you did have a free, completely free market banking system, it probably wouldn't look horrendously different. There'd just be more competition, which would create more accountability. The process for discovering what the rules should be would be better. Um, and we saw this kind of in the 1800s, but let me come back to that. So basically, you have the Bank of North America, which was kind of set up as a way to help fund the war. So if I remember correctly, essentially they take this huge loan from France and gold, they issue currency to help pay the soldiers, they win the war, pay France back, everything's all goody good, and they close the bank down. Then what happens is that you have the first central bank of the United States, or the first bank of the United States, which um, James Madison, if I remember correctly, ends up basically putting the kibosh on that. But then only a few years later, then he establishes the second U.S. bank, which lasts up until Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson, super populist, not necessarily, you know, I want to say he was like this super sophisticated person who understood monetary policy and the downsides of, you know, possible downsides of central banking and, and monetary authorities, instead looked at it more as, uh, which is also a consideration, is that the, the power that central banks give to the banking class, in a sense. Because banks end up playing a much larger role through their relationship with the central bank in the government financing process, they end up having sort of an outsized influence in the political process because the political process is financed through the banks. Um, and there's not really a way you can avoid that. It's always going to be financed through the financing system. It's called the financing system. But that means the people within that system, since they're providing the money for everything or figuring out how all the money works, they're going to have influence. And this gets to a whole other topic of, you know, the ethics of money production and how money's produced and how it affects influence and all that stuff, which is a really interesting topic. I've done episodes on it before. Go back and listen to all the back episodes. You'll find cool stuff. But um, basically, it was just like, you know what? I'm a populist. People don't like the, the, the second U.S. bank. We're getting rid of the second U.S. bank. And they, he did. Okay, very few presidents you can really say just said, hey, they did what they wanted to do. Um, and he did not renew the charter. Had this very bitter war with uh, Nicholas Biddle, who was the uh, the bank chair at the time. And theory or, you know, folklore has it that basically Nicholas Biddle played with the money that the um, because what happened is that essentially manufacture the recession that happens afterwards. Although it's pretty easy to see if you take a look at history, anytime there's some sort of big monetary change, it doesn't necessarily have to be a change in the central bank or a change in the, the particularly in how the money works, but just some sort of big national change in the banking system. There tends to be a recession afterwards. Uh, my hunch would be that just has to do with sort of the economy sort of refiguring out what's the new normal. Um, uncertainty has a tendency of having people hold back and enough people holding back can definitely slow down economic growth so if you create some sort of really big 
change in how financing works in the in the country that's going to take a second for everybody to kind of reassess things so they can calculate make those economic calculations and that loss of time does have a cost which could be i mean it's better than just rushing things you want people to make smarter decisions but there's a cost so there was a recession, all that stuff, and then Martin Van Buren stood strong and made sure did not reestablish the bank, despite um, you know calls to do just that. Okay, that definitely wins some points in my book. And then basically you have what's called the free banking era, where basically there wasn't necessarily well there was a lack of a central central bank. There were different parties that acted as clears between re- banks within different regions, and fulfilled that role like new york safety bank and other parties so it wasn't like there was it's like absent a government sanctioned central bank doesn't necessarily mean a lot of those functions won't exist within the economy um you actually had a fairly robust time of growth some of the problems you had during the 1800s was less because the lack of central bank but because of something called unit banking unit banking was the fact that most states even though there wasn't really much in the way of federal bank regulations yet you had a lot of state regulations so states would tell you you can only have one location for your bank so banks were really susceptible to recessions because their depositors were all super local, so any local economic hiccup killed the bank. And when one bank goes out of business, the people in the next town over hear that that bank went out of business. They start worrying about losing their money at their bank, so they start pulling money out of their bank. So you had this very weak banking system because banks were so small that caused very frequent, well, in part, caused very frequent banking panics. And just food for thought, as a comparison, you can compare canada during the same period of time they had no central bank either but they didn't have necessarily the frequent panics during the same period of time largely because they didn't have unit banking so their banks were much larger and much more geographically diverse so you didn't have they didn't have as many banking issues per se you know interesting stuff so what happens is that basically you, you do have this banking system where banks last like three to five years. You have banking panics frequently. Again, pro- more than likely do mostly due to the whole unit banking thing. And again, the country's still fairly young at this point. So a lot of institutions are still formalizing and, and figuring themselves out. But then what happens is that in 1907, a guy by the name of Charles Morris decides he's going to corner the copper market. And so basically the idea is just he wants to control the market. And to do that, you need to buy a lot of something to have enough of it that you kind of determine what its price is. So he borrows money from places like the Knickerbocker Trust Company and other banks and really leverages up this trade and the trade doesn't succeed. So he loses all sorts of money, which means all these financial institutions that lost him money, I mean lent him money, lost that money, which causes a panic, the panic of 1907. Now, who has the most to lose when the chips are falling? The people with the most. So who had a lot? J.P. Morgan, billionaire. So since at this point, the economy is kind of collapsing, and you know if you're J.P. Morgan, you're watching all your assets fall, fall, fall in value, you have a choice. You can just kind of let the chips fall where they may, or you can try to you know stop the bleeding by intervening yourself into the economy. So a private intervention. So J.P. Morgan, along with a lot of others, they get into the economy, they start buying up ba- distressed banks, they start collateral- um, capitalizing them with their own capital and stabilizing the banking system. 
And this is, tends to be kind of profitable uh, for people like JP Morgan because you're getting a lot of these banks at a discount. And once they're all under his mutual ownership, kind of, you know, you're it's kind of like having a big bank and that creates a more stable system. You know, everybody wins and you didn't have to have the government come in and, and, and intervene. So stabilizing the economy can actually be profitable. But J.P. Morgan was kind of worried that he was getting older and, you know, the next time this kind of panic thing happens, because he's done this several times before, that, uh, you know what, maybe maybe no one's going to be around to stabilize the economy like good old J.P. Morgan did. So he gets together with his buddy, buddy Senator Aldrich, and discuss, hey, you know what, uh, we should probably think about what's going to happen in a situation like this. So they pass the... Um, the Aldrich Act. And what the Aldrich Act said is that they're going to investigate or study banking systems. Essentially, they paid for Senator Aldrich to go hang out in Europe for a few years. And what he found is that many of the countries in Europe had this thing called the central bank that helped you know, prevent a lot of these fluctuations in the banking system. Imagine had they paid for him to go hang out in Canada, what different conclusion he might have came up with. You know, it could have been totally different history. So basically says, hey, we need to have a central bank because, you know, that seems to be what works in other countries. So eventually the Federal Reserve Act passes in 1913. The Federal Reserve opens its doors in 1914. And banking panics, for the most part, continue to happen up until 1933. In 1933, the two things happen. One, we go off the gold standard. Two, um, you have the Glass-Steagall Act, which creates FDIC insurance. Now you'll hear people try to make the argument that, oh, well, we went off the gold standard, so that's why the banking panic stopped happening. Um, I mean, if you think about psychologically what happens during a banking panic, the idea is that someone is scared they're not going to get their money out of the bank. So then what happens is that they go pull their money out of the bank before everybody else takes their money out of the bank. Because that way, if the bank does run out of money, at least they got their money out. And this causes everybody to kind of rush in there. If you... What, if this were you, which thing factor would probably factor more into that fear, that uncertainty? The fact that your money has some sort of backing that the bank um, has to hold behind your paper notes, or two, the fact that you, or no longer has to have that commodity backing, would that suddenly make you feel safer inside? Or two, the fact that your bank is insured, and that even if they don't have your money, the insurance will cover you. I think it's, to me, it's more logical that FDIC had a lot more to do with why banking panics ended in 1933 and going forward. But again, there's, you know, economic experiments are kind of hard to commit, but psychologically, I think it's a lot more plausible. So, so banking panics kind of end up here, and if you take a look at the work of, like, an economist like Charles Calamaris, you'll, you'll hear talk about how kind of you, you switch one problem out for another. So before you had banking panics where banks would fall apart because people were scared of the bank failing and then you but now instead you have bank failures where banks are able to since depositors aren't necessarily as sensitive to the risks of the bank going out of business the bank is able to take on more risk which leads to the bank eventually taking on too much risk leading to the bank becoming really top heavy and failing at some point in the future so you're swapping one problem out for another 
And, you know, there's all sorts of possible solutions to this. Um, I'm not going to have the discussion about privatizing deposit insurance today. I have had that discussion in several videos and, and, and uh, podcast episodes in the past, so go listen to the back episodes. But figured you might find that interesting. So, and then the Fed kind of evolves from there. But how does the Fed generally work? So the Fed does clear transactions, so they act as the bank between banks. They um, do regulate their member banks, so this is all well and good. Okay, and a lot of those rules, I think, come... The Fed has, like, a lot of different parts to it, and I think a lot of people don't spend enough time thinking about the different parts. So there's the Board of Governors. Now, the Board of Governors... Uh, I have a good chart that shows all of this. I have a video on the Fed you can find on YouTube where you actually can see the chart of the structural the structure of the Fed. But if I remember right, seven Board of Governors, and the Board of Governors are appointed by the President. So right here, you definitely have a very political, you know, when people talk about Fed independence, I mean, the Board of Governors who make a lot of regulatory decisions and, and, and serve on the, the Federal Open Market Committee, um, if they're all appointed by the President, like, is kind of a clear influence that the president holds over how the Fed makes decisions. So it's not just the chairman that's appointed by the president, but seven, all seven Board of Governors members, which all sit on the Federal Open Market Committee. And the Federal Open Market Committee, the Board of Governors matters mainly for the on the regulatory side. If I'm pretty sure that most of the regulations come from the Board of Governors, so they decide on what rules pass and what rules should be put in and what rules should be taken out. But when you're talking about monetary policy, they're actually putting money in, taking money out. That's really decided by the Federal Open Market Committee. And they're made up of the seven Board of Governors, uh, including the chair. And there's, uh, I forget the exact number of Fed banks, but out of those Fed banks, I'm pretty sure that it's five Fed banks, I think four on rotation, and always New York. Always the New York Fed's always part of the committee because the New York Fed runs the the open market desk where all this stuff actually happens once it's done. Um, and the Fed banks, though, the Fed banks aren't appointed by the president. So the people who are the head of each bank, they are elected, not by the members. And then each bank has a board of directors that works with the bank that the regional banks chair to and then they are also elected by the members and they're split up into and all the members are split up into three classes large banks medium-sized banks small banks so that way the board of directors generally has i think three board members for each so each bank has a board of three members from each class so you'll have three from big banks three from small banks three from medium banks in that region and then the head of the bank, and then they'll elect the head of the bank. So the reason being is that you want, if the banks are going to be regulated and being using the system, you want the different sizes of banks that kind of have a say, and you want the person who's sort of the head of the bank to be someone that all levels of banks feel comfortable with. So that way there isn't this power imbalance. I mean, there always are power imbalances, but the idea is to kind of help balance out the power between the banking industry and the different parts of the banking industry, small, medium, and large banks, and then also the political considerations uh, with the Board of Governors, who are more sort of paragons of the president. So the FOMC makes the decisions on whether, you know, we're going to raise interest rates, lower interest rates, and basically manages monetary policy. 
And monetary policy works along many different channels. Okay, a lot of different people have different ideas on sort of how you use monetary policy. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of just saying, hey, if there's more money, it's going to cause inflation. If you take money out of the economy, there'll be less inflation. And think about it simple as that. Um, other people focus on sort of expectations. So are we creating... So basically, some people want to give focus on monetary policy in the sense that it's not so much what you do more than what the market expects. So a lot of times they spend a lot of time really carefully crafting everything the Fed says and puts out to the public. The reason being is that this kind of signals to the banks what the Fed is thinking and what the Fed is going to do. And then the banks will essentially pretty much do what the Fed wants because they, well, if they're like, if the Fed's expecting that, if the Fed kind of hints that they're going to loosen policy, meaning increase the money supply, banks will naturally just kind of start lending out more at lower rates. So they'll kind of implement the policy ahead of the Fed actually, you know, buying more treasuries because that's the way they put money into the banks. Essentially, the way the Fed really conducts monetary policy is they go shopping. So if I want a bank to have more money, I will buy government bonds from that bank. So now that bank has more money. Now, where does the Fed get the money? They make it up. So literally, it's just the Fed has this computer that lists every bank and how much money is in that bank's bank account. And then banks can then in turn lend up to 10 times whatever's in that bank account. That's because the because banks have a deposit requirement of 10%, meaning that really theoretically was supposed to be that if a bank has $100, they put $10 to the side. But really what happens is that basically if banks have $100 in their bank account at the Fed, they're allowed to have extended $1,000 in loans. And a lot of times what banks do, and this is sort of a big debate in monetary policy, whether it's like, whether it really is the monetary authorities that control the money supply or it's the banks. And we'll come back to this, but this is the idea that a bank will just make a bunch of loans and then figure out how much money they have at the Fed at the end of the day. So usually what do is banks will borrow from each other. So if I'm short and meeting my reserve requirement, meaning having my 10%, so if I have $1,000 of loans out, I need to have $100 at the Fed, my 10% reserve requirement, and it's even that, not, and that's still mathematically not quite that simple, but if I'm short my 10%, meaning 10% of deposits, I can go to another bank, see if they have extra money that they can lend me overnight. This is called the Fed funds market, where banks are blending to each other so that way they can meet that 10%. So there's some banks that lend a whole lot of money. They lend more than they can, are technically are able to lend, and then they just borrow it. They do it hoping that they can borrow from other banks at the end of the day. Now, what happens is that if the bank, if a bank can't find any other bank to borrow the money from, then what they do is that they'll go to the Fed and say, hey, Fed, oh, buddy, oh, pal, um, I know we're supposed to have 10%, but we kind of overdid it. Can you lend us the money and we'll pay you back for some interest? And they'll borrow the money from the Fed at the discount rate. So the fear is the banks could literally just lend as much as they want and then just go as long as they have the right collateral go to the fed and the fed will just increase the money supply in response so some people will say hey you know what it's not so much the fed but it's the banks because the banks just lend the money and then figure out how to finance it after the fact and it's a little bit of both the fed puts constraints in there that's going to have its effect on how banks behave and then the banks take liberties that are going to kind of push the fed's hand because the fed does 
has to consider several things. The Fed is supposed to be considering financial stability, so they don't they don't want the financial system to become unstable or unpredictable because that causes chaos. Two, they want to make sure that they they're supposed to be managing inflation. They're not supposed to eliminate men inflation, but keep it low. And three, keep unemployment low. So the way you would keep unemployment theoretically low is that if you make loans really cheap and then people borrow money and this turns into all sorts of economic activity, which hopefully turns into jobs and can also potentially turn into inflation. But that's sort of the logic there. So the Fed's kind of balancing out all these considerations all the time. And they can do that by buying and selling treasuries with the banks. So they're basically putting money or taking money out of the reserve account. They said... That reserve, they set the reserve requirement saying, hey, this is how much money bank you need to have in your account. And they manage that whole, they, they get involved in that whole lending between banks um, by being a lender in that market to lend people for their reserves. So through all these different tools, the Fed kind of micromanages the sh- interest rates, but on top of it, what they're really doing is kind of setting expectations for banks, which will set the which will set up how much risk they take, which will set up, determine sort of where the capital gets allocated to. And this is where it starts really getting problematic because by shifting different people's expectations and, and, and the thing, the metrics by which they do economic calculation, it's not that people are going to make investment more or less investments, but they will make different investments. And this is where you start getting into the whole malinvestment thing in the Austrian business cycle theory, um, which that I would... I've done a lot of videos on that, so go watch those. But um, that's sort of what the Fed does. So again, they're managing monetary policy over there at the FOMC, and there's so much more about the Fed. I've talked about the different advisors and and whatnot, and all sorts of other functioning of the Fed. But uh, I think this gives you a really good overview of what the Fed does, what its, its powers are, um, how it works. Every bank, every national bank, has to be a member of the Fed. So if you get a national charter, you have to be a member of the Fed. If you're a state bank, you have a choice, but most state banks do want to be a member of the Fed because you get access to that discount window and you, you, you get that flexibility, you get that sort of back ability of being able to do discount lending from the Fed, meaning borrow that extra money if you need it. But every bank, when they become a member of the Fed, is forced to buy stock in the Fed. The stock really, all it does is just give you, it gives you that voting power so you can vote on who sits on the board of your local Fed bank and also it gives you it pays you a six percent dividend so basically at the end of the year the fed does make money off all those all that trading it does with the ofmc and but first what it does it'll pay its operations so pay the salaries of everybody who works at the fed then it pays everybody their six percent dividend um, which is not much and then with the remainder it all goes back to the treasury so most of the money the fed makes sometimes you're talking about like 80 um 80 million dollars sometimes 80 billion dollars i always forget how many zeros is at the end of that but that money gets given back to the fed and actually kind of ends up being used by the treasury to to pay for all the other stuff the treasury the government does so the fed some people say hey the fed's a private corporation it it, it structurally is but it's still essentially an arm of the government it's just it's set up that way for certain governance reasons but it's not like a for-profit business that literally sits there and thinks about how can we make more money? It's really more of like a club for bankers that provides services to the banks, um, but that also has these really large economic implications as far as monetary policy goes and regulations go um, in the banking system. 
because it's a club that every, for the most part, every bank has to be part of. And so it works very much like many SROs or self-regulatory organizations in other industries. So hopefully this is a good overview for the bank. If you guys enjoy these Monday episodes, please do become a supporter at patreon.com slash Alex Merced. That's patreon.com slash Alex Merced. Because at the end of June, if I don't hit enough support, I'm going to have to just go back to doing once a week episodes. So again, subscribe to the Alex Merced cast. If you're not already subscribed on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, head over to patreon.com slash Alex Merced or donate.alexmerced.com for other ways to donate. Have a great day and enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Alex Merced cast. Learn more at alexmerced.com, libertarian101.com and libertarianwingmedia.com. Follow Alex Merced on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.